Um, turn with me, please, to Nehemiah. And we will be tackling Nehemiah 3 to 6, but I would want us to focus our, our, I'm going to have us read Nehemiah 4, verse 1 to verse 23. But before I read that, I wanted to say thank you for your prayers. Uh, the elders and deacons met uh, over the weekend. We had our retreat, and I'm still hired. <laughs> you didn't make any decisions while I was sleeping, right? <laughs> Um, it was a very profitable time, and we talked about where our church is right now and where we should be going. And we, we're, there's still a lot of reflection, prayer, and discerning of God's purposes for us to be done. But we came up with the following mission statement for our church. We are to be a base camp for believers a lighthouse for the lost. Now, as a base camp, you may be wondering, well, what's a base camp? Well, a base camp is a place where you launch out, from which you launch out. If you're exploring a jungle, the base camp is where you start. And periodically, you return so that you could get um, materials, food, equipment. And so our, our role as a church is to equip, encourage, strengthen believers so that we can serve God well in community and we send you out to serve the purposes of God where He has put you. But we're also a lighthouse in that we shine the light of the gospel as a community, as believers. And so, you know, on Saturday, we'll be gathering together to play games. And I hope that when people see our game, game time, our interaction with one another, our love for each other, which I hope will come out. I think it will. <laughs> when they see our love for one another, they will realize there's something special, something different, something that only the gospel of Jesus Christ could have brought about. It is an ambitious goal, and we're trying to refine that goal further. And let's admit, we, are, we have a long way to go before we can make this a reality in the life of the church. And that's why it is providential that we are talking today about the way the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. The, the Israelites faced a situation far beyond their capability. And yet they overcame every obstacle they encountered. How did they do it? Well, let's read Nehemiah 4, verse 1 to verse 23. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became very angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed, he rid, uh, he ridiculed the Jews. You know where he got it from. <laughs> he ridiculed the Jews... And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? <laughs> Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, 
<laughs> what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we'll, we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. So how did they accomplish the rebuilding of the wall? Well, first of all, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1 up to chapter 4, verse 6, you'll realize that they worked together. They recognized that God was calling them to vindicate the honor of his name by rebuilding the wall. And so they gave themselves to the task. In chapter 3, I'm not going to read it, but you find a list of 45 work groups, and the arrangement or the listing goes anti-clockwise. Um, do we have the slide? Yes, so that's... Um, I, I took a screenshot from the NIV Zondervan Study Bible, and you see the green there shows where the wall was during the wall that they rebuilt during Nehemiah's time. 
And the description in chapter 3 goes anti-clockwise, from the sheep gate going down and around all the way back to the sheep gate. And if you read chapter 3, you will realize that the wall was not built by experts. We, they didn't have a Dave Enns or a Dave Sauve or uh, who's the other Dave? Dave Farrow. <laughs> All of these. Is it a job description to be handy <laughs> if you're a Dave? <laughs> anyway. They, they didn't have experts. They didn't have paid laborers. You will see chapter 3, verse 1. Priests led the way. These were men who studied the Bible for a living. And they were joined in verse, chapter 3, verse 8 by goldsmiths and perfume workers. Not masons, not carpenters. Goldsmiths and perfume, work, perfume makers. And verse 12 and 14, civil officials. Even in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 12, even the women helped. The daughters helped. Now, in our day, that's not surprising, right? Why not? They work in, women work in construction, and women are engineers. But in that culture, they, that was unheard of. So that the image that is given to you in chapter 3 is of people from every walk of life forming what you might call a coalition of the called to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And here's the wonderful thing. As they came together and built together, they built not just the wall. They built more than that. They built the community of faith. And that's how the church is built up, isn't it? We grow as every part of the body fills the role that God has assigned. One of the great things we recognized in our retreat yes, Friday and Saturday was we are gifted with a wide diversity of skills, abilities, talents. We've got engineers, artists, nurses, stay-at-home moms, competent cooks, awesome cooks, great dishwashers, you know. <laughs> it's a great spread. But I hope you understand that you're part of the church because God intends for you to play a part in its growth. Even if your greatest skill is your checkbook. That's great. We can't just rely on staff or the church officers. We need everyone to use all their skills and abilities in order to serve God's purpose as well. See, we talk about the church as a base camp because we want to recognize that the church's goal isn't to just help you live your life. We want to help you live your life serving the purposes of God. It's about serving God. It's about living for something greater than yourself. And so, let me encourage you, if you're not involved in any way here at the church, um, talk to one of the deacons or elders. You'll see who they are, or some of them, when they serve communion later. Talk to them about some of the church's needs, and we have a lot of them. <laughs> now, so somebody might ask, okay, I, I understand the need to serve, but what about my needs? And I would say that's a legitimate question. And let me address it from a personal standpoint. I, I have learned after 40 years of being involved in the church, I grew up in the church, 
that God meets my needs as I give myself to the work. 1997, I went to Jamaica. I was mentally and spiritually burnt out. I had done too much at my former church, at the church where I'd grown up. But when I got to Jamaica, I had a choice. I could be a consumer seeking to be served by the church there, or I could be a servant giving myself to the work. And after a couple of months of attending the church that I end, where I ended up in, in Kingston, Jamaica, I, I had been refreshed by their love, their acceptance, by the worship, and I began to see areas where I could serve. In fact, it, it kind of hit me the first time I went there. They had two pianos and no pianist. And I'm like, oh, I sort of kind of have been accused of playing the piano, so pastor, can I help? Anyway, what happened was giving myself to the life of the church did so many things for me. It protected me from temptation as a single man living on a Caribbean island all by myself. Being with the church protected me from temptation. And it addressed my loneliness because it surrounded me with a family in a foreign land. And it gave me direction for my life. I am a pastor today because that church helped me understand that God was calling me to be a pastor. That church was for me a base camp. They equipped me, strengthened me to serve the purposes of God. See, the more you invest in the community of faith, the more it blesses you. To be a mere consumer of the church or to hold yourself apart from the church is to deprive you of the blessing of communal life. And that's why it's such a tragedy in chapter 3, verse 5, to read of the Tekoite nobles, Nehemiah 3, 5. They are remembered forever because their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Can you imagine being remembered for all eternity as those guys who would not serve? But look, there's, there will always be people unwilling to work. There will always be prima donnas. And there will also be people opposing the work. We find in chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 3, Tobiah, Sanballat, mocking and jeering. These were officials who opposed Nehemiah and the work because it would diminish their influence in the region. And so they tried to oppose it by having a military parade to intimidate the Jews, and they were mocking and jeering. And the most stinging insult was the most accurate one. Verse 2, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? It hurt because it was true. These Jews were truly weak. They were inadequate for the task of rebuilding a wall. A goldsmith uses very fine instruments, not, not a sledgehammer, not a trowel, very fine, delicate instruments. Perfume makers, they were the chemists of the day. I mean, don't give me a sledgehammer. I'll hurt myself. <laughs> we mix chemicals. That's it. Their biggest asset was their nose. 
So yeah, they were truly weak. And it hurt to be slapped in the face with a weakness. But So what did they do? Well, verse 4. They don't answer. They go to God. They brought their pain, their frustration, their weaknesses to the God whose purposes they were serving. See, best thing to do when you encounter opposition in the work that you're doing for God is not to respond, but to keep doing the work. And you let God take care of the naysayers. After all, it is God's work that He's seeking, that they are seeking to hinder. And so the people refuse to be daunted or distracted by the mockery. Look at verse 6. So they were able to build the wall up to half its height. Why? For they worked with all their heart. The coalition of the called worked with all their hearts, fired by their passion to glorify God. But I think you realize they didn't do this on their own. They exercised dependent responsibility. You will note, their reliance on God led them to pray, but they didn't stay at the prayer meeting, did they? Look at verse 7. They began to take responsible action. In fact, this whole passage can be a case study in compatibilism how human responsibility functions under God's divine sovereignty. We are told in verse 7 that when threats and intimidation and mockery did not stop the work, they began to plot together. Again, what was their response? Verse 9, But we prayed to God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. It's a great passage. They relied on God, and because they relied on God, they posted a guard. And by this time, verse 10 tells us, they had been working so hard that the people were worn out. They had worked to, half, to build half the height of the wall. They'd spent maybe a month. And if you're a goldsmith or a perfume maker or a civil official who pushes paper, uh, <laughs> a month of slinging a, ma uh, slinging a sledgehammer, carrying bricks, laying mortar, that's going to wear on you. And to make matters worse, verse 12 the Jews in the outlying areas were in panic over the threats that the enemies were posing. It, if there was a coalition of the called, there was a coalition of, the op of, of opponents. And the threat seemed to have come from east, west, north, and south. And there was a combination of fear and fatigue breeding discouragement. And I think we've all been there, right? You're tired from serving. You're frustrated at the lack of results or things aren't moving as well as it li you'd like it to be. And then your bills are piling up. But you will notice moving forward that they overcame the discouragement by looking beyond themselves. They looked and re they thought of the people 
who needed them. Notice what Nehemiah says in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You notice what he does? Guys, it's not about you. It's about your wives, your daughters, your sons, your brothers, your homes. You've got something bigger than yourself to take care of. You've got a great reason. And even more important, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You may be weak. You may be, you may not, we may not be as numerous as those enemies. But God is with us. And if the great and awesome God is with us, we have nothing to fear. He has infinite power. We may not have the strength to go on, but our God who is with us promises His strength. And indeed, look at verse 15. We are told that God frustrated their enemies' plans. But still, the people stayed vigilant. They were secure in the knowledge that God had their back. They continued to work in the face of threats because here was their confidence and comfort. Look at verse 20. Our God will fight for us. See, the fact that we depend on a sovereign God doesn't mean we just sit around. Rather, the fact that our God is all-powerful motivates us to act. That's why William Carey, the pioneer missionary to India, would say this, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. See, this is not reckless adventurism. This is responsible faith. If you believe God is great and awesome, then you can dream great and awesome things. But, not, but let's understand, you're not writing your own checks that you can't cash. As you're serving the purposes of God, you realize that God's purposes are far greater than our own purposes. And so Nehemiah, knowing that he was doing what God had called him to do, could trust God to act on his behalf. And God's support, God's gracious hand upon him gave him the courage to act boldly in faith. And certainly he needed to act boldly in faith in chapter 5. You see, the threat in chapter 5 wasn't external, it was internal. There were leaders in Israel who were exploiting their fellow Israelites. See, the people were so busy rebuilding the walls, they couldn't take care of their farms. In fact, they, they had to stay in Jerusalem. They couldn't go back to their homesteads. They had to stay in Jerusalem to be a guard by night and workers by day. So there was not enough people to take care of the farm. And the farm wasn't going to take care of itself. And the problem was they still had to eat. Right? And even more threatening was they still had to pay taxes. That wonderful thing. 
And so what they had to do was borrow from the richer people around them, the Jewish nobles and officials. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, when they couldn't pay their loans, the nobles and officials enslaved their children. Look at chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Can you imagine the horror of that? Of having to give up your kid to be somebody's slave because he couldn't pay the debt. And the, their cruel and unjust actions were not just jeopardizing the work. They were threatening the unity of the community. And more than that, they were violating the Mosaic law. So their greed threatened the character of the community. After all, what is the point of building a wall to protect an abusive society? And how could the people of God be a light to the nations if they were acting unjustly to, towards one another? So Nehemiah had to confront the nobles and officials. Now, politically, this is a bad idea, right? But Nehemiah had to act because, according to Derek Thomas, this was a battle against the purposes of Almighty God aimed at destroying his determination to redeem, his, to redeem his people through the coming of a Savior. And so Nehemiah, in chapter 5, verse 6 to verse 9, was very angry. He thought of a strategy, and he confronted the officials. Verse 7, You are charging your own people with interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. That's a real conflict of interest, isn't it? To say the least. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And then he challenges them to implement the law's provisions for debt forgiveness not for political gain, not, for, not out of fear of punishment, but out of godly fear. Look at verse 9. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? See, to fear God is to obey His law. And to fear God, to revere God, is to love God, is to seek the best for your brother and sister. It means caring enough on the part of Nehemiah to confront sin regardless of the cost. It means protecting the weak so that we honor God by looking after His people. And so they sought there is a shift here. They begin to seek the common good out of godly fear. In verse 12, the nobles agreed to forgive the debts. And as Nehemiah held the leaders accountable to seek the common good, 
the community was preserved and they were able to continue the work. And Nehemiah himself could challenge the leaders because in verse 10 and verse 15, he set the example in seeking the common good out of godly fear. In verse 10 and 11, he admits his own culpability. He says, verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. I'm part of this problem. I'll, lay, I'll set the example of helping to solve the problem. And he didn't just look after the needs of the people so that the work would go on. You, were, you notice in verse 9, shouldn't we walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He wanted to ensure that they showed the nations around them the beauty of a society living under God's law. That's what being a lighthouse is all about. We as a community show people the beauty of being in relationship with Jesus. And later on, we are told in verse, chapter 5, verse 15, he even gave up, uh, verse 18, he even gave up his right to the governor's support because he had compassion on the people. Look at verse 18. And, and this was a costly compassion. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. It's a lot of money. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governors because the demands were heavy on these people. See, godly fear and compassion resulted in sacrificial generosity. And it's a challenge to us. James Hamilton would say this, Our need is to know how to steward what we have for the glory of Christ, the good of others, and the advance of the gospel. There are no specific directives that we give certain amounts or everything away, but there are guiding principles. Under God's sovereignty over what we have, we are responsible to image His generosity and wisdom to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, using our money to advance God's kingdom through the church. Where we are not doing this, where we are not doing to others as we would have them do to us, where we are abusing others to benefit ourselves, where our financial practices are bringing shame on the name of Christ, we must repent. And repentance requires action. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. And his reverence for God meant that he made the approval of God his main priority. That was what drove him. That's why in verse 19 he says, Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. He's not boasting to God as if, God, you should be proud of me. No. He is looking to God as his audience of one because to him the pleasure of God is what matters most. And as a church, I'm grateful to God for your generosity for the last five months of this fiscal year. And I would encourage you, let's keep doing this, not so that we can pay the bills. That's a very trivial matter. Let's do this so that our God would be pleased with us because we are good stewards of His provision. Now, 
having corrected the injustices internally, they were able to go back to doing the work that God had given them. And in chapter 6, we find that Nehemiah's singular focus and determination to get the job done actually protected him from the traps that his enemies were setting. Chapter 6, verse 2, we are told that Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to, messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? I have no time for meetings because we've got a job to do. And so they, they weren't able to trap him. So when setting a trap didn't work, they sought out to discredit Nehemiah. In verse 5 to verse 9, they had an open letter because they were trying to smear his character and his motives, knowing that Nehemiah was a trusted servant to Artaxerxes. Nehemiah, well, he knows the truth. Verse 8 and verse 9, he says, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're out of your mind. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for their work and will not be completed. And here's the best response. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. And so they tried to destroy his reputation by trickery and in intimidation. Verse 10 to verse 14. They use Jews in Jerusalem to get Nehemiah to be afraid to go into the temple for sanctuary so that they could discredit him. But he refused to be intimidated. He still did the right thing. And look, Satan is not going to sit idly by when God's people trespass on what he thinks is his turf. So when we do God's work, it will never be easy. Nehemiah faced internal and external opposition. And his primary response was to take the opposition to the Lord in prayer. Over and over and over and over and over, we see, and we prayed. And the prayerful attitude of Nehemiah and the people are a great example for us to follow. And that's why we have the prayer prompts. Thank you, Sarah, for the name. <laughs> but you might also be troubled by the way Nehemiah prays for God's judgment on his enemies. In, in verse, chapter 6, verse 14, and in chapter 4, verse 45, he, notice chapter 6, verse 14, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Nehemiah, that's not very loving. <laughs> well, let's say that love for enemies does not preclude asking God to judge. Dave Barker talked about imprecatory psalms. Uh, some of you may not have been here, and many of us might have forgotten. So let me, uh, let me cite Dean Ulrich. I, I think he has a, a great sense of what imprecatory prayers are about, and uh, it's very consistent with what Dave Barker talked about. Imprecatory prayers allow God's people to submit the desire for justice to God. See, the desire for justice is a good thing, right? 
He can be trusted to do what is right with each of the variables. Imprecations arise from a conviction that God's justice must prevail and express a longing that evil conduct and evil people will not have the last word in history. That longing is founded on God's ownership of the world. Evil should not prevail in the world of a righteous God. At the same time, imprecations give the final say to God. The one who prays the imprecations surrenders his or her will to the will of God. He or she acknowledges God's right to judge when and how he sees fit. There are two ways God can answer an imprecatory and eliminate his enemies. The first is conversion. That's awesome. And the second is judgment. And this is a matter of ultimate importance. See, if you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, let me, let me say that we are not considering you an enemy. But we also have to speak the truth in love. If you refuse to acknowledge the rightful lordship of Jesus Christ over your life, then you make yourself God's enemy. And our prayer is that you would repent of your resistance to his rule and put your trust in him. See, Christ died and rose again so that you might be reconciled to God through faith. And so we would urge you to flee from the wrath to come so that you may know the joy of being right with God. Now, in our day, we see direct opposition to God in the way people live. But we also need to realize that for many, it's not so much that they are opposed to God as they are indifferent to God. They just want God to leave them alone so they can do their own thing. And so part of the way we need to pray today is that God would create a holy discontent in the hearts of men and women. That God would shake people out of their apathy. But he also uses means. And this is where we as a church need to be a lighthouse. I remember at my former church, my, my, our neighbors next to the church, they were an old gay couple, and they came up to me on the sidewalk one, one day and said, RJ, we need to introduce some kids to you. Why? We want them to come to your church. Really? Why? <laughs> and they said, well, we met them, and we, we, felt, we felt so sorry for them. They, they looked so miserable in their homes. And we, we want them to have the kind of joy your young adults have when we observe them on the street. And I thought, wow, these people would never come to our church. Like, they'll be friendly to us from Monday to Saturday, but we're not seeing them on Sunday. But they saw something in the life of the church that they wanted other people to have. And they, would not, they may not want to admit it, but it's something they would have wanted to have. They just want to give up something that mattered more to them. But that's part of the way we challenge people's apathy. By being a joyful community that acts with love and compassion. And so, we come to the end of chapter 6. 
As Nehemiah and the people of God focused on the work and relied on God, the work moved forward. Look at verse 15. And the wall was finished in 52 days. Can you imagine? Rebuilding a wall in 52 days with unskilled labor opposed by enemies all around. They did it in 52 days. And their work was so astounding. Look at verse 16. The people who tried to scare and dishearten them are the people who themselves are disheartened. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. The building of the wall was a testament to the greatness of their faithful God. God had exerted his might for the sake of his helpless people so that they accomplished the purpose for the building of the wall, the vindication of God's honor. The building of the wall proclaimed the excellencies of their great and awesome God to the nations around them. And the very existence of that wall standing in their faces was a direct challenge and call and invitation to bow the knee to Yahweh. And that's the way God does things, isn't it? Gideon had to beat the Midianites with 300 men. So that, oh, and you know, how many Midianites were there? Oh, just 100,000 against 300. No big deal. Why? So the people would recognize that it was God's victory. We are called to, the, to do the humanly impossible task of making disciples in a city indifferent to our God so that as Crustwick grows against all odds, all men will know this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. Or as Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, that's you and me, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So let's get to work. We rely on God so that we would be a base camp for believers, a lighthouse for the lost, that our God would be honored. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the assurance, the confidence that we have that you are our God. We are your people. And that you have put us in this place so that we may be a light to the people around us. So that in our life together, they would see the transforming love of Jesus Christ. They would see the beauty of our Savior reflected in the way we treat one another, in the way we conduct ourselves. And that beauty 
that fragrance of Christ would radiate wherever you send us, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our friendships. But Father, we recognize this is, this is beyond us. We, we are imperfect people. We still struggle with our sin. We still struggle with our weaknesses, our struggle with ourselves. But we thank you that you've given us your spirit who is at work transforming us from within by confronting us with your word, by changing our desires, by leading us to repentance, by driving us back to Jesus Christ whose unfailing love continues in the midst of our failures. Father, thank you that Christ himself has promised in sending us out that he will be with us to the end of the age. And so, Father, strengthen our hearts, fire us with zeal for your glory, for your honor, that we may see Christ lifted up proclaimed in all his beauty and majesty in this place and around the world. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.